0: This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. Each week, you'll hear captivating talks and compelling conversations from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. On this episode, we hear from economist Robert Reich, Reich is the Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at the University of California at Berkeley and Senior Fellow at the Blum Center for Developing Economies. He was Secretary of Labor during the Clinton administration. In this lecture, entitled The Politics and Economics of Inequality, Reich discusses why the issue of widening inequality is so critical and what he thinks should be done about it. According to Reich, some inequality of income and wealth is inevitable, if not necessary. Because if an economy is to function well, people need incentives to work hard and innovate. In his opinion, the pertinent question is not whether income and wealth inequality is good or bad, but at what point do these inequalities become so great as to pose a serious threat to our economy, our ideal of equal opportunity, and our democracy? Here's Robert Reich.
1: As you can see, uh, the economy has worn me down. Uh, I want to talk to you about the economy. I also want to talk to you about politics, and a little bit about sociology and ethics as well, uh, because they really can't be separated. Uh, you know, the uh, the notion of economics as a separate discipline uh, really comes in 1890 when Alfred Marshall, the great economist, wrote his Principles of Economics. Before then, in the 19th century, uh, it was political economy. People talked about political economy. They saw the relationship between politics and economics. It was impossible to talk about one without the other. And if you go back even further in time, in the 18th century, well, it wasn't even political economy. Uh, Adam Smith called himself, not a political economist, but a moral philosopher. In the 18th century, the question addressed by people who were otherwise, or today, were assumed to be doing economics or politics, uh, was really a fundamental question that I want to talk about today, and that is, what is a good society? What are the hallmarks of a good society? How do we define a good society? Uh, The debate over inequality is a hard debate. Uh, and it's becoming harder almost all the time. I've been working and writing and uh, occasionally I've had uh, administrative positions uh, and working on this issue. Uh, It's hard because regardless of how you interpret the facts, you have to come to the conclusion that inequality is widening in the United States and almost every other country. The United States is a little bit of an outlier. Uh, The inequality is wider here than it is elsewhere. But it's also a difficult thing to talk about because many people understand the issue and frame the issue as a zero-sum game, in which either some people, the wealthy gain or the middle class and the poor gain, that there's a, some sort of trade-off between the two. Uh, that's not necessarily the fact, and I will get into that in more detail in a moment. Uh, the other Part that's difficult about this conversation uh, is that implicitly some people in talking about inequality are understood to be blaming others. Whether it's blaming the poor or blaming the rich uh, or blaming immigrants or blaming anyone else. There's a lot of blame going on. And if you really understand the contours of the issue it is not about blame at all. It's about how we have organized ourselves in this political economy with regard to certain set of objectives having to do with how we define a good society. So rather than get in the blame game and also rather than get in the zero-sum kind of mentality, I would like to go on for a little bit talking about what the issue is all about and what we might do about it and then open it up for your questions. Okay? Good. If you said no, I don't know what I'd do. Uh, First of all, the first thing that you need to understand, everybody needs to understand, is that some amount of inequality is necessary and inevitable. We're not all born with equal endowments, and any economy, if it's going to have the right incentives for people to work hard, and save, and invest, and innovate, is going to have some degree of inequality in terms of what people are paid. You can't expect that people are going to make those kinds of efforts without there being some reward at the end. So the issue really is not inequality or not inequality. The issue is very different. The issue we are debating today, and Thomas Piketty's book really crystallized the issue for many people. Uh, when I say Thomas Piketty, some people say, "What's well, it's Thomas. Piketty. Well, I, I, I actually had a chance to uh, talk with him a couple of months ago, uh, and I said uh, Tomac, and I started a question, he said, no, 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 call me Tom. <laughs> so I'm going to say Thomas Piketty. Uh, he crystallized for many of us uh, a fundamental question, not so much about equality or non-equality. The question is, when does equality become so wide? that it threatens a lot of things that we all hold in common. The economy, equal opportunity, and even the coherence of a society. And are we getting to that tipping point? Uh, The economy is not doing terribly well in the United States. I, I don't know whether I need to tell you that. Uh, If you are mainly dependent on the stock market, uh, it's doing pretty well. But if you are mainly dependent on jobs and wages, it is not doing terribly well. Most Americans right now are not experiencing a recovery as we normally define a recovery. Uh, It is true that we are back to the same number of jobs we had before the crash of 2008 but we've got 15,000 more people of working age who need and want jobs. So we're not actually back to where we were. We can't go back to where we were. We need to have many more jobs. Uh, We also know that the median wage is actually falling. The last 12 months, median wages, weekly earnings uh, have dropped. Uh, and I want to make sure that you all understand, that I understand that you understand, the difference between average and median. Average wages are going up, but the median isn't. The median is going down. How can that be? Well, the, the basketball player Shaquille O'Neal and I have an average height of six foot two. <laughs> Do you get my drift? You see, averages can be pulled up by people at the top. What you really want to look at is the people smack in the middle, half above, half below. And what we've seen, and this is not new, this has been going on for years, we've seen is that the median wage, whether it's hourly or salary, median wage has been going nowhere. Adjusted for inflation, it's been going nowhere for quite some time. Now, people have slightly different critiques of different models and different data sources, and even Thomas Piketty Thomas Piketty, uh, has been criticized with regard to some of his data sources. But generally, there is widespread agreement that median wages in the United States have gone basically nowhere, particularly if you're a male worker dependent on hourly wages. Uh, in fact, the real mystery for so many of us so long was how can American consumers keep on buying when wages are going nowhere? You know for years, the American consumer was the energizer bunny of the global economy, kept on buying and buying and buying and buying, even though those of us who were looking at the data saw wages and even benefits benefits shrinking and wages going nowhere and so the question where Is the money coming from? How can consumers keep going? And this really began in the late 1970s, this leveling off of wages, even though the economy kept on growing. In fact, today the economy is more than twice as large as it was in 1980, Uh, but median wages adjusted for inflation almost where they were. Uh, The answer to that puzzle How can people keep on spending even though wages are going nowhere? The answer to that puzzle is very simple. Number one, when male wages started declining, women, particularly young wives and mothers, streamed into the workforce. Starting in the late 1970s, continuing in the 80s, continuing in the 90s. A real social revolution. We didn't talk about it as such at the time. I was one of those who thought it was due to all of the wonderful professional opportunities open to women. Well, that was part of it, but the major reason wives and mothers streamed in the workforce, paid workforce, they've been working obviously, and poor women have been working right through, but the main reason that middle class, lower middle class wives and mothers streamed in the workforce was to prop up family incomes because male wages were starting to falter. And when that coping mechanism was exhausted, people turned to a second coping mechanism in the 1990s. Uh, When I was Secretary of Labor, I was amazed at how many hours people were putting in at work. Uh, Billable hours if they were professionals, overtime if they were not professionals, hourly workers. Everybody was working extraordinary amounts. Uh, In fact, Very often, in the same family, you had husbands and wives, partners, who were doing shifts. They were passing each other. They were working 12-hour shifts at more than two jobs. Uh, I I had an acronym for these families. I called them DINS, D-I-N-S, Double Income, No Sex. (laughs) Because I didn't actually, I didn't know, you know, how did we procreate in the 1990s? I don't know. Uh, but, But when that coping mechanism That is, working more hours was exhausted, because there's only a number of hours that you can work. We turned to a third coping mechanism to deal with flat or declining real wages. And that third coping mechanism was turning our homes into piggy banks and basically refinancing them or getting loans based on the home's collateral value and we did that for a number of years and home values everybody thought would keep on going up and then of course we had the housing bubble and the debt bubble exploding in 2008. So one reason that inequality or at least stagnant wages and the question of where's all the money going has become so salient is because all of those coping mechanisms are now exhausted. If those coping mechanisms are exhausted, the economy is not going to grow because the middle class and the poor no longer have the purchasing power to keep the economy going. Latest figures show that the best estimates for economic growth this year are about 2% annualized. Now that may sound pretty good to you, but let me tell you, it's not. In fact, when we have suffered, as we did, a great national recession, second only to the Great Depression, what you expect and what you want in the years following that huge economic collapse is very large economic growth per year to get us back on the track we were on. That's what happened in the Great Depression. We had very fast and very large growth in 1934, 1935, 1936, 2% annualized growth per year now doesn't get us anywhere. In fact, the latest data out of the Commerce Department actually show that in the first quarter of this year, the economy contracted. Now, I think a lot of that is because of weather, but it's not just weather. It's that 70% of the economy is based on consumer spending, consumer activity. And if you've got so many people who can't spend and they can't borrow, and we don't want them to go back into a borrowing binge like we had before, we saw what happened then. If they can't borrow, they can't spend, they don't have adequate wages, they are caught in basically living from paycheck to paycheck, then the economy as a whole is not going to grow. They don't have the purchasing power to enable the economy to grow. 65% of Americans right now are living paycheck to paycheck. There's a lot of insecurity out there. So one of the problems with widening inequality, that is stagnant paychecks, stagnant wages for the vast majority, median wages going nowhere, most of the economic gains going to the very top Is that you've got an economy that cannot function. There is not enough purchasing power in the economy to enable it to function. And that is the story of our time right now, post-coping mechanisms. So quite apart from issues of fairness, there is just a basic economic issue. How do we get the economy going if the middle class, the great middle class, and the poor don't have the ability to buy what's needed. Sometimes when I talk about this issue of buying, some people get a little bit nervous. Well, don't, don't, aren't we buying too much? Aren't we filling our, our houses with too much stuff? We can't afford this environmentally. Isn't this not sustainable? When I talk about consumption, I'm talking broadly about not just material goods, I'm talking about everything. Health, public health, education, Uh, the general infrastructure of the country. Some of them are public goods, some of them are private goods. We're talking about utilizing the productive capacities of the country. And we're not going to utilize the productive capacities of the country if we don't have a large and growing and buoyant middle class. So point number one, why we are concerned about widening inequality is just a basic pedestrian issue and that is the economy cannot get out of the doldrums, and we cannot promise our children a better life. And we'll come back to this. By the way, I should say, just summarizing this first point, and this gets back to my point about it not being a zero-sum contest, the wealthy in this country would do better with a smaller share of a rapidly growing economy than a large share of an economy that is not growing. It's basically dead in the tracks. This is not a zero-sum game, folks. Point number two, why are we concerned about widening inequality? Are we getting to a tipping point right now? Point number two has to do with upward mobility, what happens to the poor, and our ideal of equal opportunity. Now, there are some people who, looking at this inequality debate, have concluded that we shouldn't be even talking about inequality. It it conjures up envy and resentment and class, and we ought to just pay attention to the problems of the poor. If we're really concerned about upward mobility and equal opportunity, let's just look at the problems of the poor and make sure that they have upward mobility and equal opportunity. And that sounds sensible on the surface. Here's where it is naive and nonsensical. If you don't have a growing and buoyant middle class, the poor cannot ascend into it. A shrinking middle class makes it harder for people who are not yet in the middle class to join it. It is only when you have a large and buoyant and growing middle class that there is the possibility of ascending into the middle class. And also the middle class is going to be less generous to those in need because the middle class is so insecure. You have a harder time getting a political coalition. And here's where, where I want to emphasize the connections between politics and economics. You have a hard time getting a political coalition in favor of helping the poor with getting the right schools and the right resources and the right social programs if the middle class is scared and itself feels like it doesn't have its own capacity to make sure that its own children and its own neighbors and friends are moving upward. Uh, And thirdly, with regard to why you can't separate the problems of equal opportunity from upward mobility, is this. We know that in the United States, 42% of children born into poverty will never get out of poverty. That is the highest percentage of any industrial country, any rich country. Even if you go to England, Britain, Great Britain, where you have a tradition of aristocracy, you've got only 30% of children born into poverty will never get out of poverty as adults. Now there's something bizarre about the United States, the land of equal opportunity, having 42% of our kids never getting out of poverty. One of the problems for so many who are in poverty has to do with the geographic concentration of poverty. The fact that there is no longer the ladders into the middle class. Uh, Research has shown that upward mobility That is, the speed and velocity by which somebody moves up into the middle class or even from the middle class to the rich has not really declined over the last 15 or 20 years, but if the ladder is much longer, the ladder separating the poor from the middle class from the rich, if it's just a much longer ladder, even if you are moving up the ladder at the same speed and velocity you were... were, moving up before, you're not going to get as far. And if you add to that the fact that there are certain middle rungs in the ladder that are now missing, they used to be called manufacturing jobs. They paid very well. You could get them even if you didn't have much education. And they were good unionized jobs. Those are gone. So you have now a longer ladder and you have rungs in the middle of the ladder that are gone. Well, you can see logically why so many of our poor have a problem ascending into the middle class. In other words, you can't separate the issues of widening inequality from the issues of the poor upward mobility and equal opportunity. Uh, The other thing to keep in mind, education is so central uh, to this question of equal opportunity and upward mobility, Uh, in the United States we are one of three. The, The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, did a study recently of what countries do with regard to spending per pupil on poor children from poor families and poor communities relative to rich and middle class children from middle class or poor or rich families in rich or middle class communities. And what the OECD found is that the United States is one of only three countries out of 34 countries they studied, all of them advanced rich countries or very rapidly developing countries, only three countries, that is spending less per pupil on poor kids than on middle class and rich kids. Now, if we're serious about upward mobility, equal opportunity, that to me is appalling. And you can connect the dots in terms of what I've said already about why a stressed An anxious middle class is unlikely to want to change all that very much. Uh, Third and finally. So, number one, the economy generally. Number two, the poor, upward mobility, equal opportunity. The third major problem we are dealing with in terms of widening inequality has to do with our politics, our democracy. And here, again, it is difficult to talk about this without sounding as if one is blaming. And I am not blaming. What we know about politics and democracy is that political power follows the money. If you've got a lot of money in the hands of a few people at the top, inevitably, inevitably, those people have more political power. Not because they're doing anything badly, but just because there are more opportunities for them to affect the political process either directly or indirectly. As the great Justice Louis Brandeis said about a hundred years ago, almost exactly a hundred years ago, we have a choice. We can have great wealth in the hands of a few, or we can have a democracy. But we can't have both. There is another corollary to the problem of large money and large wealth infecting and undermining our democracy. And even if the Supreme Court in Citizens United and McCutcheon had not done what they did, we would still have this problem. And that is that political scientists see more inequality means more divisiveness politically. In fact, there is a direct correlation between the degree of inequality in a society and the degree of political polarization. Why is that? Well, nobody has come up with a good theory, but you can see the direct correlation. You had, in the 1920s, high inequality and high polarization. And then between the 50s, 60s, 70s, you had low inequality, much more political collaboration, not only formal among the parties, but also in the country at large. And then when inequality began to increase in the 80s, 90s, and now, high levels of inequality, much more polarization. My theory, and it's just a theory, is that what happens in high with high levels of inequality is that people are working harder than ever and they begin to feel frustrated. They're not getting anywhere. In fact they are worried, they're insecure. When people are frustrated and insecure economically, they also can get angry. And this is fodder for demagogues on the right or the left who want to use the politics of resentment to advance their own political agendas. And what we have in periods of high inequality, high frustration and anger, we have a politics of resentment where people, politicians, leaders are pointing the finger of blame if they are on the left. They're blaming the rich and they're blaming corporations and they're blaming uh, various other forces. If they're on the right, they're blaming the government and they're blaming the poor and they're blaming immigrants. It goes back to the blame game that I was talking about initially. Uh, The irony is that I'm old enough to remember issues that really did cause the country to split. I mean, the civil rights movement was very, very hard for many people, particularly in the South, but many in the North as well. Vietnam and the Vietnam War. uh, Go back to the communist witch hunts of Joe McCarthy and that era. I mean, we have had in this country issues that split us very powerfully, very dramatically. But right now, the level of vitriol and bitterness and anger and nastiness in politics is worse than I've ever seen it. And it's hard to come up with the kind of issue like the communist witch hunts or Vietnam or the civil rights movement or anything else that would justify or seem to explain this degree of vitriol. I think my explanation is really the easiest to comprehend. I think it is about the frustrations of so many people. Uh, I was on a television show not that long ago arguing with an economist who had been a uh, chief economist for John McCain in the 2008 election. We were arguing, I don't know what we were arguing, some economic issue, uh, but it turns out we actually agreed more than we disagreed. Uh, He he was very smart. (laughs) And we got to the station break, a commercial break, and the director in my earbud um, Came on, and I said, Pretty good, huh? I mean, I thought I was feeling pretty proud of both of us for finding so many areas of agreement. And she said, No, be angrier. (laughs) I said, I don't want to be angrier. I mean, I thought we're modeling what the country needs right now. She said, No, you got to be angry. I said, Why? I don't want to be angry. She said, Because you got hundreds of people, I mean, thousands, millions of people who are surfing through hundreds of television channels, and they will only stop when they see a gladiator contest, a kind of a a bloodletting, a kind of uh, mud wrestling. And I said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. We need, we agree. I don't want to be angry. She said, you have to. We're going back on the air in 10 seconds. I said, I don't want to be angry. She said, you have to. And at that point, I lost my temper. (laughs) But I thought about that uh, instance since then, and I think that what she's really, what the producer was really saying is that the country is so angry. There's so much anger out there that people do want to see in the media their anger replicated. There's something satisfying about that kind of angry response. Uh, and sometimes when I'm on MSNBC or on other channels or on radio stations, uh, again, I'm aware that they are selling their channel and their commercial products through a a, a layer, a thinly veiled layer of vitriol and anger and blame. Uh, Which gets me back to the issue of inequality overall and why it's so hard to talk about it. There are solutions, but in order to get to the solutions, we've got to get out of the blame game. We've got to understand that this is about how we are organized, how we've organized ourselves. I mentioned education. Education is a key. Uh, At the University of California, Berkeley, where I teach, one of the things I love about a public university is the diversity economically of my students. A third of my students are Pell Grant eligible. That means they're coming from very poor families. How did they get to the University of California, Berkeley? Well, they started at a community college. Community colleges are the great unsung heroes of our entire system of education. We need to do much more. Uh, It is absurd and an absurd conceit that the only way people can get into the middle class and have a good job is through a four-year liberal arts or a four-year college degree. That's not and should not be the case. Other countries, notably Germany, have excellent world-class systems of technical education. We need to do the same. Beyond that, We can alter a tax system. You know, people often don't remember, or they don't want to remember, that before 1981, from 1943 to 1981, the highest marginal income tax, that is the marginal income tax on highest income earners, was never below 70%. And even after all of the tax deductions and tax credits, even if you're looking at the effective rate, it hovered around 50 to 54 percent. Marginal, highest income earners. We can't even begin that discussion now. But if we're going to have great educational systems we, and a world-class infrastructure and all of the other things, the public goods that we need, I don't see any alternative, given that the middle class is so stressed. The other thing that needs to happen, in my view, has to do with constraining Wall Street. Uh, Wall Street is indirectly culpable here, and this is not, again, a matter of casting blame. Wall Street is playing by the rules, as Wall Street has helped craft those rules, but Wall Street's excesses leading up to 2008 did impose a huge burden on many of the most vulnerable members of our society. Uh, I know, and because I've talked to some of you, that some of the sessions here at Aspen at the Ideas Festival have looked at housing policy and have looked at many other attributes of the problems of the poor and the middle class in the wake of 2008. But unless we have some limits on the size of the biggest banks and also resurrect the glass-steagall act which separated investment from commercial banking i'm afraid we are going to see a replication of what we have saw what we've seen before nobody no institution no financial institution or any other institution should be too big to fail period now let me just say one final thing when people ask me, what's the first step for dealing with widening inequality, the very first step, I take a page out of Larry Lessig's book. I think getting big money out of politics is critically important. Uh, I, am a, I am chairman of an organization called Common Cause. That... <laughs> We have a Common Cause member here. (laughs) I urge you all to join. Uh, It's an organization that has been battling this battle courageously and very, very well uh, for many, many years. Founded by a Republican, John Gardner, 45, 43 years ago. Uh, But we've got to, in order to make any progress, we've got to make our democracy work and restore our democracy. Uh, My biggest fear is cynicism. Uh, A new poll uh, put out by the Pew Foundation uh, showed that 62% of Americans now believe uh, that the game is rigged. Uh, In economic terms, the powerful are running the show. Uh, Even a majority of conservatives who are young, people who are under the age of 24, but call themselves conservatives, believe that the game is rigged, that there's too much power over the economy by a small group of people. Well, this can lead to change, but it can also lead to widespread cynicism about the capacity of our system to respond to the needs of our people. My students are very publicly spirited, but by the same token, when we talk about politics or them getting involved and engaged in politics, they basically hold their nose. And I tell them, If they are going to give up on politics, they are giving up on democracy. And if they're giving up on democracy, they are ceding the most valuable thing that we have to basically special and particular financial-based interests that do not have the public interest at heart. So political engagement is critical. Fighting cynicism is critical. I started by talking about the relationships between politics, economics, and ethics. This is fundamentally about what we mean by a good society. I am not a class warrior. I mean, Bill O'Reilly calls me a communist. I am not. I've never been a member of the Communist Party, I assure you, Uh, and I'm not a class warrior. But I am a class warrior. W-O-R-R. It's one letter, but it really is important. Uh, And I think everybody in this room, uh, I hope, is also a class warrior, uh, Because everything we hold dear, our economy, equal opportunity, and our democracy, and the continuity and integrity of our country in terms of avoiding polarization are all at stake here. Thank you very much.
0: That was Robert Reich, recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 30, 2014. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and from across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that both shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can also follow the festival on Twitter at Aspen Ideas and at Facebook slash Aspen Ideas. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.